people might have heard of the paris agreement but they have no clue what goes into making it or even what the paris agreement means for that matter and i think this was one of the biggest things that stayed back with me which is why now my focus has been on climate change education one of the reasons being of course there's not adequate up to date knowledge on climate change that is being taught to the students in india how do you expect the youth of india to even know a little bit how do you expect to be active at the international level when they have no clue what's going on or even active at the national level when they don't even know what to do and which is why this has always stuck with me and what i've always been trying to do is to bridge the gap because if i have been privileged enough to go to these negotiations i think it is my duty my responsibility to ensure that i pass on this knowledge to the other young people in india so that they can be active it need not necessarily be international policy advocacy it could be anything but for them to take action they have to have some sort of knowledge and which is why i got into climate change education trying to talk to youth and students and basically everyone who i can about climate change of course not just the science but a lot more about what they can do what happens internationally how their voices matter when you look at the international and the global picture of climate action so yeah just trying to bridge the gap motivate youth and get them to take action Hello everyone, my name is Dean Long and welcome to the podcast Lifeline. In this podcast, I will interview people who are having a positive impact in their community and have a strong message that deserves to be shared. We will dive deeper into their journey becoming a change maker and hopefully you can take away some insights for your own journey. And please do subscribe to Lifeline on YouTube, Apple Podcast or any platform that you are using and also you can share this episode with your friends if you like it. It's really what helps me the most. Hita is a climate educator from India who gives all her energy to enhance the participation and power of youth in grassroots as well as international processes and policies. She's currently serving as the global focal point for Yongo, the official youth constituency of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or UNFCCC. We discuss how Hita found her calling after attending the COP21 in Paris, which is about bridging the knowledge gap on climate science as well as on international processes among the children in India who are at the forefront of facing the impacts of climate change in the coming years. We speak about how Hita took more and more responsibilities with Yongo on a mission to empower and engage youth for the climate all around the world. Hello Hita. <laughs> Okay. So that's the second time I say hello to Hita because we had some technical issues. That's <laughs> <laughs> so natural. <laughs> um, no, I was saying that I'm really delighted to have you. I usually start by reminding a bit how I know people I'm interviewing. And yeah, the truth is I don't we don't really know each other, but uh, I've been following a bit what you do online and I think what you do is really amazing around young people and climate change so i really want to bring your wisdom and your life experience to as many people as possible so yeah i can't wait to understand a bit how how do you become you know like global goal point of young go this kind of i had so many questions i want to ask you so uh, i think that's perfect platform to do that and um i i so i, I i've been stalking you a lot yesterday the day before tomorrow to just to see what you have done before and 
And yeah, you've been in a lot of panel discussions. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so I will. I, I listened to a few. So let's hope that you don't repeat yourself each time. Um, <laughs> It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Bindong. Thank you for the invitation. Maybe I can invite you to introduce yourself. What is your current activity? Where you're calling from? Anything that you want to share to start? Sure. Um, so I'm Hita, and I'm from India, from Mumbai, and I have been active at the international level, but also at the local level on different climate change activities. So I went for my first COP, my first conference of parties back in 2015 at COP21 in Paris, where the famous Paris Agreement was signed. But it was my very first COP. I had no idea what happens at the negotiations, um, how uh, the procedures are, what people are supposed to do there, etc. So I was completely, completely lost because of the scale of the venue, just Um, everything, right? It was huge. The COP in Paris was huge. Um, but I think the good thing that it did was I already had a master's in environmental studies, but I was working as a German language translator. So nothing to do with the environment. So nothing to do with what I graduated in or post-graduated in. <laughs> and uh, I think the good thing that it did to me was it made me, once I came back home, it, I was thinking about, you know, where I was heading. And I said, this is not why I did a degree in the field of environment. So it made me want to quit my job, which I did a few months later. And I started again from scratch. I started volunteering with a couple of organizations with someone who I knew. And that's how my journey began back in 2000 and early 2016. Um, and I slowly then got part of a few youth organizations, got involved um, and went back at COP22 in 2016 And that's when I got introduced to youth constituency, so which is basically Yango. It is the, the official space for young people within the UNFCCC to engage, to ensure that voices of young people are heard at the negotiations. Um, and I met a lot of young people from across the globe, and it was very, very inspiring. So that's how I got part of the constituency. I got engaged um, after the negotiations, stayed engaged as part of different working groups, etc., And here I am four years later, it's Global Focal Point, something I, I would never have imagined if, if someone would have told that to me back in 2016. I would, I would have laughed at their faces. But yeah, an absolute pleasure and honor to be where I am today. And it's, uh, it's still a long way to go. We have so much work to do. And yeah, just happy to be doing what, I, what I've been doing. Cool. So welcome back to all of that. But first, I wonder, does Hita mean something? <laughs> it does. It means affection for others. Oh, It comes wow. from Sanskrit word of hate, which means affection. Is this meaning important for you? I think it is. I think it does unknowingly define a lot of what I do because a lot of people feel um, I can be extremely loving, affectionate, very uh, get concerned by people very quickly. So, uh, yeah, I I think there is something that. I mean, there is some interconnection. Yeah, my name means Temple of the Dragon. So we both have a very cool name. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to... So I think it's... I, I had no clue you were... You, you said German translator, right? Yes. So yeah, so coming back even before that, just wondering, like, first things first, like, did you... I guess you grew up in Mumbai. I love the Mumbai sandwiches, by the way. And... Uh, <laughs> 
what brought you to study environmental sciences? Were you always into environment stuff when you grew up? For me, I think this was something that I always liked ever since I was a little child. I mean, whether it was a birthday, whether it was just, you know, I always liked being out with nature or maybe helping a stray or um, an injured bird or something like that. So, I mean, this was something that I grew up with as part of me. It was it was second nature to me at some level. But I think one incident that I remember very clearly, I must be about 12 or 13 and coming back home from school one afternoon. And uh, in the city of Mumbai, we have this uh, drive by the sea. It's called Marine Drive. And as I was passing that, I there was this whole project of the beautification of Marine Drive, uh, which was going on. So they were widening the road, creating space for like more space for walking and creating it as an, you know, an entire drive, which can be used for people to walk like a promenade by the sea. Um And we had these huge coconut palm trees which used to grow like or which were planted there like years ago, which were there and they had to take uproot these trees. They probably replanted them. I'm not sure what they did with them. But at, there was this one incident that afternoon when I, as I was coming back home and I saw this entire huge tree. Uh, it was uprooted on this big trailer. So I saw the tree with its leaves, fruit, everything, but also with its roots out. So in its, you know, the entire tree like taken out and lying on this trailer waiting to be carried away. And that really, really shook me. I couldn't understand how people could ever think of a beautification project by taking out the natural beauty out of it. And I was just shocked. I was just like, how is this beautification for anyone? I just could not understand it for me. And I think this is something that has stuck with me throughout, which has probably motivated me to voice, uh, to be the voice for the voiceless, for our natural resources for our living, whether it's a plants, whether it's our animals. Um, these are basically our life-giving systems. And this is something that has, like this incident has definitely stayed with me. And I think every time when I feel like, you know, when there is, when I'm feeling low, when I feel like, oh my God, there's no change happening. I think this comes back to me and I feel like, okay, no, if, if we're all in together, there is still something we can do because these guys, they can't speak for themselves. You can't expect the trees and the animals and, I don't know, our natural resources to speak for themselves. So we definitely have to be their voice and ensure that we're working towards a planet which is not just a planet for the humans. It's a planet for every living being. And we all have to be here together peacefully. How did you have this awareness of this so early? that trees are part of our human system as well? I mean, this is uh, very logically, I mean, ever since you're a child, you're always taught, right? That trees give you oxygen, it helps you breathe, it, it cleans your air, etc., things like that. Um, and it was also probably my parents, my family, who are also a little more open-minded in that sense. Not um, So it was probably my upbringing also, like how it, I was taught to respect all living beings. We, we I was never taught to... Um, you know, throw things, just throw trash on the street or, for example, or just throw things out of the window. I was always corrected if I ever did something like this. So I think it was probably just the entire upbringing of how it was. We also had a family farm and we spent summers there and spent like a lot of time there um, every every few months. And maybe this was something that I grew up with, which made me, because we have lots of trees and, you know, it, it stems from there where you respect You respect it because that's what makes that place what it is. That's what keeps that place going. That's what also brings it income. Um, so I think this was just something that I was grown up with. 
and i didn't really need a eureka moment to go like oh okay this is something important so from that moment you started to say okay i want to study more about environment yeah i mean it, uh, i kept asking my you know parents and saying you know what can i be and i think someone might be jokingly they just said oh you can be an environmentalist when you grow up grow up and that stuck with me and i said okay i want to be an environmentalist um so i think this jokingly like the comment that i can't remember who told me it, it was either a relative maybe a friend maybe someone else <laughs> or maybe just my parents i can't remember but this term just stuck with me without understanding what it meant and as i grew older i wanted to know more what an environmentalist meant what do we need to do um of course i had uh, i would i had to make decisions that when i wanted to choose a degree what field do i want to go into and like most indian students uh, or most indian students who have studied science until grade 12 uh, the first thing is do you want to become an engineer or do you want to become a doctor and i realized i didn't want to do either but i didn't know what i wanted to do, to do but i knew for sure that i don't want to become either a doctor or an engineer so that's when it got me thinking a little more into different fields and um, slowly narrowed down i did my bachelor's in life sciences and then i finally decided okay this i want to be in the field of environment and i did my masters in environmental studies there is uh, just makes me think of uh, a joke i used to hear a lot uh, so you know, i told you i did this uh, jagriti yatra so this like train journey across india so i was with like 500 indian youths like every day for two weeks and i realized everyone did the engineering school that <laughs> 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 it's the most common um, and the most i think also the most preferred by indian parents by families that you know you want your kids to either become a doctor or an engineer or a chartered accountant yeah so <laughs> and, and the thing is you know most of the people were having a job which had nothing to do with engineering but they all told me yeah you actually choose after your engineering school what you want to do in your life uh, <laughs> i found it so I mean it's funny but it's also a bit uh, I mean a bit sad. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, back to you. So yeah, just to say that it's great that you had this strong drive not to do engineering at 18 because I mean if there is such pressure, you know, from the parent, from the society, from your friends, from the university to do engineering school and you don't do it, I mean you must be super strong in your head to choose your own path. Yeah I mean I for for a matter of fact I mean I never liked the I mean even today I'm not a big fan of numbers so I can't do math physics I mean I can do it of course but it's not something that I would willingly want to study it's not my field of interest um so I knew for a fact that is not something I wanted to I remember I was almost crying after I finished my high school my grade 12 exams because I was just so relieved it's over it was such a pain for me um, <laughs> and i was I'm, i've been blessed to have um, quite supportive parents in that sense so it it i've never been pressured into studying or you know doing something that i truly really have never wanted to in life so that's yeah that's been super great as well it's it's helped me a lot okay uh, did your studies met your expectations um actually when i went into it i didn't have too many expectations i knew that i, I just didn't want to do few things like i didn't want a few degrees but everything else like the world was open for me so even when i did my 
bachelor's in life sciences i learned quite a few things and i realized what i like what i don't like things that subjects that i had more interest in etc um but when i finished the degree of course i there were a lot of things that i that i did like that i could have gone ahead to pursue a degree and it could have been a lot more science based for example uh, maybe something in genetics or neurobiology or um any of the more sort of biological research research fields um but somehow that was never my calling and i always so the reason i took uh, life sciences in the university that i did actually was because i was getting an applied component of environmental studies in my third year basically mm-hmm. my final year of uh, of the degree i was getting the same degree life sciences in a few other universities but they had a different applied component maybe fisheries or maybe something else and by the time i finished i i was finishing my degree i knew that you know if i have to study further it's going to be environment otherwise i'm not really keen on doing anything else so it it just narrowed down with time so did you study environment straight after the three years yeah i graduated and immediately right after i joined my master's degree course in new delhi how was the transition with uh, being a german translator <laughs> did you so was it related to environment what you had to translate <laughs> no no not not related to environment um so after i finished my bachelor's degree in the break that i had in the summer break i i had i i just took for for fun i started studying at the language school at goethe institute i took up german language classes and this happened because when i was 19 i had traveled to germany and i lived there for about 5 weeks with some family friends and and the language had always interested me so i remember i had taken some notes when i traveled to the country etc and come back but never really pursued it and so when i had this time after i finished my bachelor's i said you know why not i mean i have nothing else to do with my time so why not just you know put in some time and study and then that interest for the language also remained so i've realized i've also i'm very very keen to learn languages so i speak german decently like more or less fluently um a little bit of french which i'm forgetting because i don't speak it very often um and i've been trying to learn spanish but i've never given it enough time now with work so that's very very basic and then of course about three three other indian languages and english wow Uh, but yeah languages come easy to me so it was just something that i did out of fun right i i had free time i did it i enjoyed it made some really great friends that i'm still in touch with today and then when i went for my masters degree this stayed with me like it somehow stayed so i did ended up doing a little bit here and there all throughout the two years of my masters ended up um forcing my university to get a german professor on the weekends for us like one hour every weekend or something like that and when i finished my masters and i came back home i was still looking for jobs and wondering what i wanted to do where to apply things like that um so i i went back and i did the next level of german language studies because again i was back home with no concrete plans at that point and the course just picked up right i i i did one level after the other i thoroughly enjoyed it i aced my class a couple of times um and yeah as i as i did one level after the other a few of my friends started applying for jobs as german language translators and i just applied for fun with them i never really was looking out for a job as a translator but they were applying and it so happened that one of the like one of the first jobs that i applied for um i got it instead of them getting it <laughs> and it was super exciting it was a really good com- organization it was with a multinational in an indian multinational in mumbai um with the tata so super trusted nice you know 
uh, yeah, I mean, it was my first job, super exciting. So I took it up. That's how it happened, and I just just went with the flow at that point without thinking too much. It's really interesting. So when you took this masters, you yeah, you had basically no clue of what you could do after that. Yeah, I mean, I I had some idea. But I hadn't narrowed down yet. Like a lot of my friends knew precisely what field they wanted to work in. Um, I hadn't, in that sense, I hadn't really found, how do you say, found my calling. Like this is, even in the field of environment, I wasn't really sure that this is what I want to do forever kind of thing. A couple of my friends went ahead and applied for PhDs. Um, but I wasn't too inclined on a PhD at that point. And I wanted to come back home to Bombay. So I definitely knew that I did not want a job in New Delhi because I just liked being back in Bombay. Mm. And I thought I'll go back home and apply for jobs here instead of, because um, most of the opportunities that I was getting was in North India and I wanted to be back home, which is why I didn't pay too much attention. And I came back home and as I was doing this application process, I said, you know, why not just pick this up? Because what's to lose? How long were you a German translator? I worked there for a year. I studied German for almost a year um, after I came back. So I spent one year studying. Then I picked, then I got a job in 2015, uh, mid-2015, I think about April or May. And I worked for a year. So after COP21 is when I decided, okay, now <laughs> I was there for about six or eight, eight months. And then I, a few months later, I decided to quit. So I worked for a year in total. And then I got back into the field of climate change. So how so another, how did you end up in the COP in Paris? <laughs> so the COP was making news everywhere, right? Before the COP, everyone was talking about it. It was in the media in India, but I'm sure it was everywhere else as well. Um, and I was just wondering, how does someone, you know, get to this place? So I tried to look online. I had no idea, right, how, how the UN functions. I'd never been to a UN conference previously. And I wrote... Uh, I mean, I, I tried online, I tried looking at some process, I figured out I couldn't understand the registration process. So I wrote to my university because they have a delegation, not my university, but the organization Terry has a delegation. Um, and I had met the, so my chancellor of my university, Dr. Pachori, the late Dr. Pachori, he's no more, unfortunately. Um, I had met him because he was chief guest at an organization, uh, at an event in Mumbai that I was volunteering at, at an environmental event. And he was the chief guest. And I, this was just after I had finished my master's. So I was very excited to meet him in person. And I told him I'm an alumni of your university, etc. And yeah, I mean, that was that was the only conversation I'd had with him, right? That was that was it that day. But um, yeah, I, I wrote to a few people in the university. I wrote to him as well. And I wrote to a few others in the field saying, hi, um, you know, how do you, can you give me the registration link? Can you figure out how I can get there? And uh, Dr. Pachori helped. He put me in touch with the Terry delegation. And I had a few meetings with them like online and I spoke to them a few times. And eventually they were like, okay, here's a batch and you can go if you want to. <laughs> just worked out. Like, I mean, I, it just, yeah, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I guess it just fell into place without me realizing what I was going to, going to go for. So, so, so again, you... you Because you like you told me for uh, like your studies, you had no really expectations. I guess for the cop, you just went there, but without any expectations either. Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of the times, I think I've just been going to places without knowing what to expect. 
Um, so for COP21, it was exactly that, right? I had no idea what to expect. I was uh, staying with a few family friends who were staying outside of Paris. So I traveled about, I think, an hour plus every day, one way. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had the whole French experience of going by multiple trains, of like learning out the transport. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was... Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm young and it was fine. It was fine for me to do all of that. And I was, at that point, I had this job, right? So I took a few, I took 10 days leave from work and I flew to Paris just for the cop and came back home after that. So the good thing was like, I knew that I'm not, like I could earn my own money. I was only spending what I could, what I knew I can afford. Um, so it, it learned, I mean, it taught me a lot of different things other than just, of course, the cop process. But even, yeah, it was a whole different experience because I think that was, I had to look after my own finances. I knew that there's, I can't really get more money than what I have. So, yeah, it was fun. It was super exciting. How old were you? Um, not too, not super young, I think. I was, uh, I must be about, I can't remember, 22, 23, 23 maybe? I'm, I'm not sure, yeah. So what were you doing during these 10 days in the COP? So you were just going around in different conferences? Yeah, just trying to figure out what goes on there. I met a few other Indian youth and I was just basically trying to get the whole experience of the cops. I went like walked around the venue, attended different events. Yeah, just learning as I went. Cool. And yeah, what did you get out of this? Because I felt like it's... Uh, I also went for the, the COI, the Conference of Youth back in 2015, COI 11. Okay. So that was an exciting experience as well. Like that was super, super inspiring. So many people, so much motivation, so much inspiration, so much work people were already doing in the field of environment. I think that was definitely very exciting. Okay. Will you say that attending COP and Kyrie, like, you know, opened the whole world of possibilities for you? It definitely did. It, it At least what it did was it, it made me realize that there is so much more happening in the world in the field of environment, climate change change in general even more than what I had possibly even studied in my degree because these are things you don't really study right and I think it's very different from what people do in practice and sort of bridging this gap and I think that has stayed with me so my aim has been from that to bridge this gap this whole gap that is this knowledge gap communications gap this huge gap that we have The entire world of the negotiations, it's so complex and people might have heard of the Paris Agreement, but they have no clue what goes into making it or even what the Paris Agreement means for that matter. And I think this was one of the biggest things that stayed back with me, which is why now my focus has been on climate change education. One of the reasons being, of course, there's not adequate up-to-date knowledge on climate change that is being taught to the students in India. So yeah, I mean... As I went to like more international like conferences, as I went from one COP to the other, I, of course, I learned a lot more about the negotiations every time. And in COP23, I went with a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine from school. And she's a counseling psychologist. So she didn't study uh, environment the way I did. But she's been extremely passionate about the environment and, you know, doing whatever she could in her own way. But a lot of the facts, figures, um, a lot of the information was quite, uh, you know, alarming to her in that sense. And was she always went like, oh my God, I didn't know it's, the, it's this bad. And that is what made me realize, I said, you know, this is someone who I've almost grown up with, who does what she can, is passionate, still doesn't know a lot of this data, a lot of this information, a lot of, 
um, everything that happens at a COP, for example, how do you expect the youth of India to even know a little bit? How do you expect to be active at the international level when they have no clue what's going on? Um, or even active at the national level when they don't even know what, what to do for that sense. And which is why this has always stuck with me. And my biggest, uh, I think my what I've always been trying to do is to bridge the gap. Because if I have been privileged enough to go to these negotiations, I think it is my duty, my responsibility to ensure that I pass on this knowledge to the other young people in India um, so that they can be active, they can, you know, um, start working in whatever whatever field, whatever, uh, you know, direction that might be. It need not necessarily be international policy advocacy. It could be anything. But for them to take action, they have to have some sort of knowledge. And which is why I got into climate change education, which I do now. Uh, I work with school students. I take workshops, uh, programs, curated as per the school, as per where the students are from, what socioeconomic background that comes they come from, because... That plays a major role in India um, on what their lifestyle is, on how they're going to be affected or how they're going to affect the larger picture of climate change. And uh, yeah, this is what I've been doing now since 2017, trying to talk to youth and students and basically everyone who I can about climate change, just of course, not just the science, but a lot more about what they can do what happens internationally, how their voices um, matter when it when you look at the interna- international and the global picture of climate action. So, yeah, just trying to bridge the gap, motivate youth and get them to take action. Mm. C- could you re-explain a bit, maybe for those who don't know, what is a COP? And also I w- I'm curious about what does it look like when you are there as a person? Like what happens? Like what? How is it going? Yeah, uh, so the COP is basically, it's short for Conference of Parties. And it, it's basically a space for negotiations, right? So for the UNFCCC, we're talking about negotiations in relation to climate change. And it is a country-driven process. So by, by parties, you mean country. So that's the term that is used. So it's a party-driven or a country-driven process. So um, all the decisions made changes made, etc. can only be done if you're part of a country delegation. So if you represent um, a country there. So as civil society, basically, um, you or me, how do we make an impact, right? So what? how does it matter whether we're at the COP or not? And I think this is what where it, it's important to realize that while it is a country-driven process, while it's the, it's the governments that eventually make the decisions, we do have a lot of chance to uh, put this additional pressure on them, right? The whole advocacy bit, the whole uh, bit of telling them, hi, you need to do a little more than what you're doing. You need to step up your game or you need to do things differently. And a lot of people, whether it's young or old, are super, super active in this negotiation space uh, and They've, we, within the UNFCCC framework, they've basically classified civil society as nine groups. So one of them is Yango, which is youth non-governmental organizations, which is a space for young people to officially engage in the negotiations. But there are lots of other groups. So there's a group for research institutes, which is Ringo. There's a group for environmental NGOs. 
which is Engo. Then there's business and industry, which is Bingo. There's trade unions, which is um, Tungo. So basically, workers, trade unions, etc. There's indigenous peoples. There's women and gender. There's local governments and municipal authorities. So the whole gamut of what you might think of as civil society broadly classified into nine broad groups. Of course, a lot of overlaps, but um, this is what was was mandated roughly about ten to twelve years ago. And, and so, Yango is more or less relatively new in the COP space, relatively young constituency, but it's also growing very very rapidly, right? Because more and more young people are getting active. More and more young people want to be involved at the at the negotiations. They want their voices heard, and I think rightfully so. Like our we're definitely going to inherit all the decisions and the implications of the decisions that are made at these COPs, and our voices need to be right there. They need to be at the negotiation tables while these decisions are being made, because at the end of the day, it's our future that we're talking about, and our future is not negotiable. It's not something that we can talk about. It's not something we can discuss. It's something that we we deserve to have a good future, a decent planet for generations to come. And which is why I think it is important for us to be at the COP to have these uh, mobilizations, to have young people represented from different parts of the world, so that we have not just the voice of a certain section of society, but we have the holistic voice of youth coming from across the globe and you know speaking together as one voice of global youth. So I, I really want to come back on Yongo after, but now I am curious on. The moment when you came back from your first COP, so in 2015, back to India, how do you feel? When did you take the decision to quit your job? What is the first thing you did to, to align a bit better to what you realized during the COP? Um, I think, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. How I felt, I definitely felt very, very overwhelmed and I was super happy to be out of the craziness of the COP and be back home. I was exhausted, hadn't eaten properly for, for a long time, um, tired with all the travel, uh, but also extremely, extremely charged, right? Like, of course, after all the physical exhaustion, etc. But I was just like, wow, this is super interesting, like what goes on there? But at the same time, I was not overly curious. I was just like, oh my God, it's it's crazy and I'm happy to be out of it. But I think what happened was more a little after that. So after all of that cooled down a little bit and uh, I got back to work as usual. And we then saw the effects of the Paris Agreement about countries and, you know, like the entire historical moment. And after that, I kept, you know, the there was only one nagging thought behind me saying, is this really what I want to do? Why did I put in so many years of thinking I want to be in the field of environment, of eventually studying a degree in the field of environment, and now I'm doing nothing related to it? Yes, it's a decent job, comfortable, nice, etc. But is this really what I want to do? And this is how I, then I started reaching back out to people. I spoke, I wrote again to Dr. Pachori saying, hi, how, how can I get involved? What can I do? And eventually, I think I just decided saying, okay, I'm going to quit because otherwise I'm never going to get into this full time. So this professor really acted as a guide for you, like throughout this period. Absolutely. You know, he's, he's been my biggest mentor. He's, uh, I mean, I don't think I would have been here without the initial few guiding steps that he's given me. 
So yeah, it's been absolutely great to be under his wing in that sense and get that guidance straight directly from him for a while at least and yeah, it's it's definitely guided me a, a, quite a bit. Did you have other climate role models during this period of time? I eventually built a lot of climate role models as I went along. So yeah, I mean now I I do look up to a lot of different people. So yeah, I I think this is something that just keeps growing as and as you meet more people as you learn a little bit more. This is something that just keeps growing. Could you introduce what what were the outcomes? Why why is the Paris agreements were important? Yeah, I think this is key for all of us to know, right? When the Paris agreement is historic is important, I think for the main sole reason that it's 197 countries that have agreed to every single word in that document. So you can imagine how difficult it would be if we were say five people in a room had to I don't know pick a color of what the presentation or the style of what the presentation should be and everyone is going to have their own view on it. So imagine a document where every single word has to be okayed by everyone in the room. So it took 197 countries and each country has its own set of focuses, priorities, issues, etc. and climate change might not be the highest priority for a lot of countries solely because number one they have to develop number two you know whatever whatever that, that national agenda is which is why the paris agreement is historical because it has been agreed upon by 197 countries um that being said it is not legally binding it is not a highly ambitious document um so you know even as per what we have in the paris agreement if if countries don't don't want to be a part of it for example like the us did and now thankfully they they will be joining back early next year but it it was relatively easy for people to leave or even to not step up and finish what they had committed for example uh, so if you committed say 1 2 3 4 5 things but you've done only 3 out of 5 there is no way where you're held legally accountable and you know where someone can uh hold you know in that sense hold any country accountable and say you you've not done this but this is also the beauty of it where it's not entirely top down it's also bottom up so it calls for countries to step up their ambition themselves it calls for countries to rise up to the challenge which is why again like again you know the pros and cons of the paris agreement its beauties are also its flaws uh and yeah it is what it is and i think it is quite an, an important framework a guiding document that we have in today's times that if fulfilled completely where where countries if they do step up their ambition um this is something that will go down in history but if not again it's going to go down in history but not for the right reasons so a bit random question but you said 197 countries need to agree on each words how does it happen concretely during the cop like is there all the representative in a room and they agree on each word like on a big screen it's done in bits and pieces right so every topic is negotiated separately so mm. whether it's for example adaptation mitigation loss and damage finance whatever it may be right so each topic is negotiated separately in smaller groups and countries have the negotiators who focus only on particular topics so they're experts in that particular field and the country has its plan on every topic on what it's going to do what it cannot do what is absolutely no or you know where it can maybe push its boundaries a little bit 
So every country comes with its planning, comes with its delegations, has its people who are covering certain topics. And this is then eventually then all put together finally in the plenary. But it's done separately in smaller bits and then put together. Mm, okay. And yeah, basically your role, I mean, the role of Yongo is to bring more young people's voices into these negotiations. Yeah, to ensure that, you know, whatever we say as young people is, is the voice of youth. Um, to ensure that we're being, we're not just, you know, there just because we're taking up space in person, but we're there because we want to push the negotiation. We want to see more action. And I think what we also do is a lot of it is behind the scenes is um, lobbying with negotiators, talking to them in the corridors, catching them during lunch and saying, hi, um, you know, we, we were part of this. We were in the room when this XYZ topic was being negotiated. And we think... Uh, maybe your country can take the stance so that other countries will follow, for example, or whatever whatever it is, you know. Mm. And I think we have been doing that. Youth have been following negotiations, um, you know, talking to negotiators, finding, you know, being, becoming friends with them, finding which country can help push which topic, which is a sweet spot for someone, maybe not so much for, for another country. Yeah, I mean, the whole dynamics of everything, trying to figure out how we can get to where we want to be, basically an ambitious and strong document at the end of it. How big is the Yongo community? Well, as our community, in that sense, we have more than a thousand young people, which is youth individuals as well as organizations. And then our social media has a lot more, but this is our official mailing list, which is roughly about there. But it, I mean, it's, it's open for people to join, right? So it's When you talk about youth organizations, they will have their own reach. So there might be just a few people who are in contact with Yanko, but they have their entire organization where they will then relay information, do their work, etc., etc. So yeah, I mean, it's it's the flat horizontal structure reaching out to youth from across the world. And we're always, we, we want to get more and more young people involved, especially from those which are from vulnerable communities, uh, maybe indigenous people, people with disabilities, but also from you know, youth who are from island states, youth from developing countries, youth from remote areas, whose voices are not very easily represented. And they're actually the ones who, who are going to be affected first when we talk about the climate crisis. Yeah, so you mentioned the mailing list. So I'm, I'm proudly, proudly, proudly part of the mailing list. And yeah, I think I just receive so many cool resources all the time. So I can only encourage everyone who's listening to subscribe to the mailing list of Yongo. Um not really active member. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm a member, but I've been attending a few calls recently just to see what's happening. I knew <laughs> it's crazy, you know, like I thought I, I knew a lot about climate change. But when I speak to <laughs> members of Yongo, I feel like I don't know anything. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the beauty of the space, right? And I think a lot of people feel that, including myself sometimes, because everyone is... We're young people, but we're still all experts in our own field. And we do have a lot of knowledge in different topics. Even when it comes to technical negotiation stuff, there are youth who definitely know quite a bit. And we also have young people who are now negotiators for their countries. Mm. So it's it's super because we have so many working groups. We have different topics that we focus on. And each group has young people who might not necessarily have negotiation knowledge, but they do have a lot of knowledge on the topic in general. So... We have this entire resource bank of youth, of passionate young people 
And I think it's definitely great because there's so much to learn when you're part of this group. And I have always felt that. I feel like I learn so much every time, whether it's being meeting them in person at the COP or, you know, just virtual engagement. I, I feel like I'm always learning because somehow it's it's never just standing there still. There's so much dynamism and it's it's absolutely great. Mm. So you said Yongo has a flat organizational structure. So which means like, And, and also like and you, you said anyone can join and then you have different working groups and basically it's volunteer led right there's no I mean you don't decide who does what it's like if there is an intention from a group they can do they can work together and do whatever they they want as long as it aligns of course with Yongo's objective it's entirely volunteer led we try to have as flat of a structure as we can so there's not one person who's more important or makes the decisions for anyone else there's no hierarchy there's not one person who you know decides what should be what should not be done etc so decisions are made in consensus and the only two positions that are elected every year are that of the focal point so this year of course it's very clear my co-focal point from switzerland and myself we always have one focal point from the global north and one from the global south in order to ensure that we have regional diversity as well but yeah all our work whether it's mediclare or me or anyone else in yango it's entirely volunteer based and it's a space for youth anyone under the age of 35 to engage so we don't have a lower limit but we do have an upper limit for the age and that's the only limit that we have you just have to be <laughs> a person under the age of 35 okay so you said from like so you started to to climate education in india from 2016 2017 i guess in parallel you were also involved more and more with yongo were you always super involved in with yongo or did, was it progressive it was progressive but i think i i continuously remained involved after cop 22 so after 2016 um whether it was a working group or something uh, or any other topic and in 2017 I became part of the logistical sort of coordination body which is known as the bottom lining team or the BLT as we call it and since 2017 I've always been part of this and we've coordinated a lot of different things worked closely with previous focal points done a lot of different things for the constituency in general also supported a few working groups here and there so yeah I've been more involved in the functioning of the constituency in that sense like with the with the whole bunch of other people who are part of the BLT. So I wonder what is your how to say maybe like area of expertise within climate change. So like I've seen like for example a talk of Marie Claire who's I I feel like she's addressing climate change through the aspect of the food system. I was wondering if you had some specific interest within climate change also i mean for me it's definitely a more different um, i've also been working with my clear on food systems okay but I, i think my my area of work has been through education mainly focusing on passing on the knowledge passing on the information and education not just sending an education but education leading into action so whether it's individual you know behavior change whether it's more of activism on the ground or whatever it would be but more of getting people to literally like you know wake up and shake up in that sense <laughs> um yeah so pushing young people to do more pushing 
even adults for that matter to change the way that they think and the thinking patterns mm. uh, a lot of systems change behavior change in that sense i've seen more and more like the people who are depressed like climate change depression i wonder did, did you ever feel something like this like our ah, climate change is too big uh am i i don't know did you ever doubt on your role that you could have yeah i mean it it's definitely not been easy right like we're fighting this huge fight and we have no idea when we're ever going to get there um so there have been moments where it has been extremely anxious extremely where you don't know whether it's going to be one of these was in 2016 at cop 22 in marrakesh when trump got elected in the united states and all of us were just we didn't know how to do like that day was one of the saddest days that i've been to at any cop people were in tears uh, we had no idea what to do how it's going to look like for the next few years uh, how other countries are going to react based on that news and whether it's actually worth all this fight right like whether it's worth all the effort that we're putting in are we ever going to see change and this was one of the uh, moments where you know everyone was down and me me included we were just like what is what's going on but also a few other moments right when you see like for example decisions being made in my own country back home in india which under the name of development are extremely not really progressive in that sense are going to harm the planet is going to harm development in general in, in the years to come right it, it this is what kind of development are we looking at mm. and i think there are moments where you just doubt and you go like is it really making any sense to put in all of this effort here when you know you're not going to get the support from the government but yeah i mean i think what's most important is well it, we all have lows but what's most important is to get up after that and go ahead and still continue doing whatever you want to do because only then we're going to be able to make the change otherwise we're just if we all just give up we're never going to be able to create this change that we want so you always manage to get up yes <laughs> we have to push ourselves and get up maybe take help from friends from family from others in the community create this space where you can talk to people whether it's young people whether it's a mentor whoever it might be right someone who you can talk to and or maybe just do something else for a while do something that makes you feel better maybe a hobby maybe whatever it is like for me it could be reading it could be cooking maybe just dancing a little bit socializing with friends mm. um, and then at the end of it i mean there's not there's never a day where i feel like i want to this is not what i want to do so i might take a break but this is I'm going to get back at it eventually. And on the other side, what were I don't know some moments during your climate journey where you realized, oh yes, it was worth it. All the actions I'm taking are worth it. I think this has been very interesting for me, especially when I take uh, sessions with students and with children back home here. Uh, these have been the most enriching part of my climate journey. when you see the change um when you see you know it's very easy for children to understand what you're trying to tell them so if you can communicate science in a way that gets through to them it's going to create the change and i've seen it a few times in person when we taking these sessions and these kids you know their expressions change when it finally hits them somewhere in the middle of the session and then you can see the whole persona is different that the way they start thinking immediately from that that point is different uh so many questions start popping up saying why are we not doing this if we know that this is wrong uh and i think this has been some of my most 
happiest moments to see this click you know to see this instant shine in the child's eye and go like oh my god okay i have to act up or like this is something that is not okay and it's not okay for me to sit down and take it as it is wanted to come back on something i said in the beginning uh when i was talking you and since you're just so busy everywhere i i wonder what what is you know from all your speaking engagements from all your panels your podcast everything what is one question what is one question that like, people always ask you when you're a bit a bit bored to answer I'm not sure I'm not sure if there is one that I'm bored to answer. I don't think I'd ever get bored to answer questions. I can talk a lot like you might have to cut me short at points. <laughs> no, I don't think there is one. Okay. So 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 on the other side is there a question people never ask you when you like them to ask you? Um Yeah, I mean it 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 depends. Uh it it It's not that it, people never ask, but I think we would be good for to, for more people to hear about uh, basically the struggles that each one goes through in their journey. And it's not just me, right? I would like to hear it from someone else mm. to understand what they went through, how they overcame challenges, or what they did when things weren't going as planned. For example, whether it's starting your own project, whether it's just uh, whatever whatever work they're doing, whether it's advocacy, whether it's change making. I mean. in any field but i think what i would be very keen to learn which from a lot of people would be what do you do at your lowest point and how do you pull yourself up how do you make that change and still continue to do what you're doing so yeah so your answer was dancing reading speaking with friends yeah cool so right now you are still You have this double I mean not double role but you 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 are still with Yongo and you are still involved in organizations in India right Yeah I I'm now so because of the lockdown um I had to reinvent the way I was working and rethink and uh you know replan everything So I was working full time until March this year uh in order to organize an international conference on biodiversity economics and climate change Uh, in India so it was co-hosted by an Indian organization called Sanctuary Nature Foundation and an organization in the United States called the Wild Foundation so it was mm. we had an excellent program planned for mid of march 8 days with people from government people from civil society researchers people from the UN IUCN uh, the entire gamut of you know whether it's business heads everything Unfortunately we had to postpone or cancel informally because of covid so we had to take the decision only about 2 weeks before the event so we were like almost there and then we couldn't do it of the health crisis um and yeah since then i started eventually so it took me a while to sort of unwind from the crazy amounts of work that we were doing and we were going at breakneck speed so took me a while to get back to life adjust to the pandemic like everyone else was doing and eventually started rethinking on what i was doing on education because i couldn't do that for the past few months because of the work that i was doing it took up a lot of my time i thoroughly enjoyed the work of course but it didn't leave me time to do anything else other than that so uh, started rethinking schools weren't working so i didn't know how to go about it so eventually it took a while finally got one school convinced 
um, for this. Uh, and yeah, that's where I started and I'm pushing with that now. The, yeah, working again on education along with, along with Yango and also a little bit on food systems. I'm now going to be working from next week um, okay. as part of the team and with real food systems, which is basically looking at the climate from food systems and how we can change food systems to create the larger change in climate action and reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. Do you see yourself doing something which is not related to climate change or environment someday? I don't think so. I have thought about it a couple of times, um, but I don't think I can. Maybe for a short while or something, maybe a short stint, but I don't think I'd be doing something very different from the field of environment. Wow, that's... I mean, I, 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 for me, that's impressive. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, you're so committed to your cause. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think anything else will make me want to wake up every morning and work. Mm. Um, I mean, there might be an additional motivation, whether it's maybe bet, a lot better money that I might make from us or some other field, possibly. But my motivation shouldn't be the salary I'm getting at the end of the month. My motivation should be whether I enjoy my work or not. And... I don't think I'm going to get that in any other field. You always has it mindset, right? Yeah. I mean, which is why it wasn't super hard for me to decide to quit my first job. I mean, it was hard. Um, but it was a decision that um, that came from within because while it was great work, it was simple, it was easy. It actually wasn't extremely challenging in that sense. It was quite comfortable and I had set work hours every day and then I just could do whatever I want over the weekend, had free time, etc. But I realized I was looking forward to the weekends. I was looking forward to the end of the month when I would get myself decredited and not really looking forward to the work I was doing every day. Hmm. That had become extremely mundane, extremely... Um, I mean, it didn't challenge my brain in any sense. It wasn't mentally stimulating after, after a while, after I learned the process. And... Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've never felt when I'm working in the field of climate change. Every day there's something new to do. Every day you have to reinvent or rethink and or whatever it is, you know. It's, there's never been a dull day. So, yeah. But do you manage to have holidays? Um, I try to. <laughs> I try to. I mean, everyone needs some time off, right? So, I, I mean, it might not necessarily be weekends, but I do try to take days off where... I'm not doing too much work or, you know, find half a day off and, or whatever, like find different days. And the good thing is right now, because I am working for myself, it's a lot more easier to do that. So I can get free time based on my schedule. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a question I asked myself recently, you know, is it possible to have, you know, one week where I don't think about work, I don't think about all the cause we are involved in? Yeah, it's tough. I wish I could get just a week without anything. That is tough. But like maybe a day or two days or like something like that is a lot more easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can brainstorm together later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would be nice to have a week or ten days of nothing to do and just like holiday for a while. Yeah, because I think you know, like, I mean, I think it's a good sign that we are so I don't know uh, we are so committed to what we are doing. But I think also I, 
sometimes I need, uh, you know, for example, when I, <laughs> it's really a stu stupid example, you know, when I shower or just have a walk for 15 minutes, I have a lot of new ideas coming because I don't think about work. So I feel like even, you know, one week of restart can bring more new idea, new perspective, etc. But the thing is, I, from the other side, you don't want to take one week off of everything because you're like, oh, my, I love my work, my work is important. But on the other side, if you take uh, some pause, then it can also be beneficial, our work. Yeah, abs absolutely. And I think it's, it's very important for everyone to take that sort of break, especially for people in our field of environment and climate change, right? It's definitely important to take care of your own mental health, physical health. Get that break in because we're in this for the long run. I don't think I've met anyone who's doing this just as a passing activity or something. Mm. Uh, because this is not something you do just as a passing activity. Yeah. You're in <laughs> so, yeah, and I think it's important for us because we, if we have to be sustainable... Our lives basically have to be sustainable. We can't burn ourselves out with too much work because that just means we're not going to be in it for the long run. And that's detrimental to the movement. So we need all of us in it for the long run. Yeah, and exactly. we do have to look after ourselves in that sense. What are some burning questions you have in your mind these days? Um, I think one would be just... And I know it doesn't have simple answers, but I think one would just be like, why can't we do more than what we're doing? Like as global community, as governments, yeah. as countries, what is stopping us from just being a lot more ambitious? Why do we have to be so cautious and just think so much? And well, I know, right? I, I, I know the whole history and I, <laughs> I, I partly know the answer to my question, but it, it's still like, why can't we push ourselves? Why can't we just take the lead and say, I'm going to do it? And then another country will follow. Why do we have to wait for someone else to take the first step every time? What is your... What is part of the answer, according to you? I mean, it is... A lot of it is, of course, because there's... The way we, we, we've developed our economic model is very difficult. We have to rethink our economic model. We have to change quite a lot, right? We're very capitalistic, very consumeristic in that sense. And that's no way sustainable for... Um, what we're talking about but at the same time even governments the entire lobby of fossil fuels the amount of money that goes into the fossil fuel industry it's hard to break out of it and for governments to make that change so I know where the difficulty lies uh, at least in theory but there's still something you know why can't we just there are all these chains holding us back but why can't we just decide we're going to break it and just go ahead And all we need is a few countries to, to say that and then the others will take the lead. And we need a few big countries to do that, not just necessarily... Of course, it would be great if they had big economic superpowers uh, because then countries will follow a lot more easier. They set up good examples. But even country like India, which is huge, has a lot of its own problems. We have a lot of poverty, a lot of development needed, as even in general, a lot of things to do to raise our standard of living. Uh, so many jobs that people need, a lot of unemployment. But what is stopping us from being ambitious and saying, despite all of this, climate change is, going, is one of my biggest threats. So I am going to step up my game. And as, as a country, as India, we're going to do a lot more than what we're doing today. And somehow I've never seen extremely ambitious 
goals, right? We see goals which are good, which are some are okay, which are. Uh, mm. But we've never seen something which makes you go like, "Wow! Oh my God, that's amazing!" And why are we missing out this wow factor when it comes to international politics? I don't get it. Mm, so yeah, so we count on you, Hita, <laughs> to lead the movement. Um, yeah, so I wanted to ask you this question, but I felt like listening to your journey, there is no. I felt like you. How to say? I feel like you don't have regrets, right? Because you don't have, you know, when you choose your jo first job, first studies, you don't have expectations. You just went with the flow always. I think it's very interesting. So you, ne but you never. I don't feel like you want to redo something. But I still ask you this question because I, I don't know. I, I want to know the answer. Um, but if you could meet the young Hita, like the 18-year-old Hita. Uh, and tell her something. What would you tell her? Um, yeah, I, I would tell her to get up and start working right from day one, and not be afraid of uh, where it's going to lead. Not be afraid of what anyone else is going to think. I mean, what the only thing I wish I could have, or maybe like even now, like do differently is stop procrastinating, stop thinking about what's going to happen, and just get up and do it and follow your heart, because. At the end of the day, that's what is going to bring you happiness. So go and follow your heart, and yeah, just just do it. Do it with full full confidence, and you're going to do great. Were you ever afraid? Uh, not really. I mean, I wouldn't say afraid to take like major leaps, but of course, there have been a lot of fears, a lot of doubts, a lot of times where whether you're wondering is this really what I'm what I'm doing right? Like when, after I quit my job, and the first day after I quit my job, I was sitting at home. <laughs> and I was just like, did I make the right decision? Can I go back to work tomorrow? <laughs> you know, because all of a sudden I realized, you know, all the because I start. I mean, when after I quit, I was volunteering for a while, but I lost the financial independence after a while, and I was living back home with my parents. And I was just like, is this really what I should be doing? While well, my friends were out there getting promoted, one job to another, um, doing a lot better, and I was just like, is this the right decision? Is this what I should have done? Or, you know, so there are these moments where you always feel uncertain of what you've done, whether it's the right thing or not. But yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't regret any of it, though. When did you realize that you took the right decision? I think it just shows in time, right? It just shows after some time as you keep can, you pursue what you're doing, for example. And for me, it's always been going with the flow. I've never really gone and uh, charted out. What my year or my next five years or something is going to look like? Everything has just been going with the flow a lot of the times, which is what I think has been easier for me. Like it's, I've not really, uh, which could also be negative because I've not really created these small milestones that I would possibly want to cover. But it keeps me happy, and I think it works for me. And yeah, what works for me is is that that's good enough. <laughs> it's a really random question, uh, but do you, do you do you do improv comedy? <laughs> no, no, I don't do improv comedy. Maybe at home <laughs> with with my friends or family or with my boyfriend. But <laughs> no, I don't do improv. No, I think you'll be very good because <laughs> uh, no, because 
Because <laughs> I, I told you it was a random question. No, because improv, it's, it, it's really about going with the flow. There is a principle in improv, which is called yes and. So basically, you have to create a scene with your partner. But you cannot plan, right? You have no clue what the person is going to say. You have no way to guess. So everything you plan will be destroyed anyway. So you have to focus on the present moment. And when your partner tells you something, you have to yes and, which means yes, you have to accept the situation. And then you have to end. You have to build on the situation. So basically, you need to go with the flow all the time. And yeah, no, I just feel like your life is a succession of uh, yes and, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's absolutely, you've hit it on the, you've hit the nail on the head. Like, I, I don't think I would have been able to say that this articulately. <laughs> 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 yeah, look, look for improv. Actually, I, I, I've been to an improv show in Mumbai. Actually, <laughs> so, <laughs> there, is a, there is a scene in Mumbai. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, no. So we are approaching the end. So I always end with two questions. One is really about the future. <laughs> so we'll see if you <laughs> if you can answer that uh, because we spoke a lot about your past, about right now. So I wanted to know. I'm always curious with everyone and uh, with you also. How do you want people to know you for and remember you for? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think, yeah, I think I would want people to remember me as someone who cared. Cared not just for the environment, but also cared for, for other people. Who was there for them in times of need. And someone who strives to make a difference on this planet in whatever little way that I can. I think you are there already, no? Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I think we can always do better at, at these things. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, how would you describe yourself in three hashtags? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm loving your questions. They're making me think a lot. Um, in three hashtags, I think there would be Hashtag courageous, hashtag kind, and I, I can't find the word for this. Actually, I know, uh, I think the third one would be hashtag breaking boundaries. Okay, so courageous, kind, breaking boundaries. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you how can people support your work how can people become part of Yongo yeah uh, so to become part of Yongo we have a membership link it's a google form um, I'm not sure if, if I can if you can share it along with the podcast yeah. maybe I will do okay. that super so I can send you the membership link and people just have to fill that in um, and yeah for me I'm, I'm active on social media on Instagram on little bit on Twitter, not super active, but I'm, I'm on Twitter um, and Facebook. I'm trying to be a little more active everywhere, but it takes up a lot of time. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever. And yeah, you can find me. I'm Heeta Lakhani, H-E-E-T-A Lakhani, which is L-A-K-H-A-N-I. Nice. And yeah, everyone, if you want to hear more about Hita. There are like 100 <laughs> conferences on YouTube. <laughs> so you can hear, hear her, so go ahead. 
cool, no? Thank you so much, Hita. I, I, I really love this conversation. And yeah, I, so many things I didn't expect. I mean, big up to the German translation. <laughs> I, I would have never expected that. Uh, so yeah, no, really nice story, nice journey. And I understand better why Raid said you, you were like high level. High level. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you, Binlong. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to the story of Hita. Feel free to tell her if you enjoyed this episode. And of course, if you want to join Nyongo, I've put the registration link on the notes. Please do share this episode with your friends. That's the best way to support Lifeland Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>